Well, as we come to the part of, of our season where we take a break now for the upcoming uh, the, the holiday season coming up and do some different things in Men of the Word, I did want to do something this evening that would be inherently encouraging. We have studied several attributes of God already that have stretched our thinking and have challenged us, especially as they pertain to the incomprehensibility of God. But this evening, I wanted to look at an attribute of God that isn't so difficult per se to understand, but, is, but elicits more of a challenge on the part of our willingness to submit. And I wanted to study this because ultimately, even though the attribute of God's sovereignty has been shrouded in so much controversy needlessly, this doctrine really is the pillow upon which we can rest our heads. That's how Charles Spurgeon called it. The most encouraging attribute of God, he said, was God's sovereignty. And so this evening, as we look to the Scriptures and as we ultimately look to our God, the one true God, I want to encourage you as we, as we set off on this study this evening in, in studying the perfection of God's sovereignty well, we have to begin with a definition of sovereignty. What does it mean when we talk about divine sovereignty, when, when, we, when we talk about this perfection of God? What does sovereignty mean, biblically defined? And I'll start off with the definition now and add some, some comments, and then we will spend the second half of our study looking at all the rich biblical testimony to this reality. What does sovereignty mean? We can define this attribute of God this way. The sovereignty of God refers to his unhindered and absolute control over all that he has made. God's sovereignty refers to his unhindered and absolute control over all that he has made. Now, when you see that definition, you see the absolute nature of it. Notice it is, it is unhindered sovereignty. It is absolute sovereignty. And it is extended over everything, over all. And it's important at the outset to emphasize those terms because when we do turn to the biblical testimony, one of the most frequently repeated words that the biblical writers come up with as they describe the sovereignty of God are, are the words all and everything. For the biblical writers, as they, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, give us God's word about himself, they have no qualms about ascribing to God sovereignty in the absolute sense. Furthermore, we can say this about this this attribute, by, by virtue of God's perfection, because he is the most perfect, God possesses both the right and the capacity to ordain, to create, to sustain, and to direct all things according to his good pleasure. It's very important to understand this. We'll come back to this throughout our study this evening, and especially at the very, very end. But when we think of God's sovereignty, we must always connect it with the idea of his perfection. God is sovereign because he is perfect, 
And because he is perfect, he must be sovereign. And if you in any way attempt to limit either of those two things, there is only harm done to your understanding of the one true God. God is sovereign and necessarily so because, as we've already studied already, He is a God of aseity. We, we discussed that, we studied that attribute earlier on in the season. We, we looked at God's aseity, and God's aseity means that He is ultimately and infinitely free. He is self-sufficient, dependent on nothing outside of Himself, and therefore, because God alone has a seity, it means that he alone is free. The only one who is not under authority and the only one from whom authority is derived. In the future, in, in, as we continue along in our study, we will look at the doctrine of God's omnipotence. And that word omnipotence refers to the fact that his power is unlimited. And because his power is unlimited, it means that it can't be limited in anything, either inside of himself or outside of himself. His power is unlimited. As well, God is a God of all wisdom. And and we'll look at that attribute as well in the future. But suffice it to say now that because God is a God of all wisdom, it means that he knows what is the very best And he knows the very best means to get there. He knows what is the very best for all of the different people in this room. He knows what is the very best in those, in your individual situations, your individual circumstances, and all the diversity that is represented here, and then all the diversity that is represented in the world that he has created. God knows what is best for every single particle, and he knows what is best to achieve the best for every single particle. That is what combines then God's wisdom and God's omnipotence and God's aseity to necessarily lead to his sovereignty through the exercise of these things over what he has created. A.W. Pink, who has written a wonderful book on the attributes of God and has even written another book that, that develops the chapter on God's sovereignty even more. It's called The Sovereignty of God. But A.W. Pink, in his book on the attributes of God, defines God's sovereignty this way. He says this, quote, "...being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, He is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases." only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name. That he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Another writer who has developed this attribute a lot in his writings is Jerry Bridges, and he has a very, very good book related to this topic called Trusting God. And in that book, he defines God's sovereignty similarly to what we've already discussed. Jerry Bridges writes this, quote, this is the essence of God's sovereignty. 
his absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bounds of his will. God is never frustrated. He never has to go to plan B. He's never sitting on his throne, using that anthropomorphic language, wondering what to do next. That is not God. Now, when we consider this attribute of God, we can we can further define it with these four characteristics that, and we're going to get into this when we look at all the scriptural testimony, that the scriptural testimony really falls into these categories, probably more, but for the sake of our time tonight, I've, I've taken it, as, as we'll see later, and, and taken that testimony and, and put it into four categories, but let me give them to you already before we get to the scriptural testimony. First of all, God's sovereignty is matchless. God is not just sovereign, but he is incomparably sovereign. There are other expressions of authority in the universe. There are expressions of authority even among us. But all of those other authorities, ranging from the smallest hierarchy, even to the hierarchy in heaven of the angels, God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's control is incomparable. He has a kind of sovereignty that no other creature possesses or comes close. In fact, as we read the scriptures, we find that all other kinds of authority, whether that be the authority of a father, the authority of a husband, the authority of a pastor, the authority of a a magistrate, all of those things are simply derived. The authority that they possess is not inherent to themselves and to their their own being. It's a derived authority that comes from the one who is matchless, whose authority is based on his own character, and, and that is God. He has a matchless kind of sovereignty. Secondly, it is a comprehensive sovereignty. It it is a sovereignty that is involved in everything, from the biggest to the smallest. So when we think of God's grand design for why he created the universe, that most ultimate purpose. God's sovereignty is thoroughly intertwined with that grand purpose. But also when we think of the smallest details of our lives, including the smallest actions that happen to us, including the smallest ailments that plague us, all of those things fall under this, this control. God's, God's sovereignty is comprehensive. Number three, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is irresistible. Despite the fact that we, in, in our sinful flesh, and the unbeliever, the sinner, in his sinful existence, will, will do what he can to resist and kick against the goads, the reality of it is God is never... Never, he never faces, he never experiences any kind of idea of failure or frustration. That when God wants to accomplish his purpose, he does so according to his good pleasure. And the greatest effort to resist that plan always falls short. God never is frustrated and he never fails. 
that sovereignty is also immutable. And this is important too, as we will see, God's sovereignty doesn't wax or wane over time. It's not that in some eras of redemptive history, he's more sovereign than others, or he was more sovereign before he created than he was in the moment of creation or after creation, or that he'll be more sovereign in the eternal state than he is now. And there are many Christians who actually believe that. Many professing Christians think that God, the moment that he created man, decided either due to the necessity of the creation or to his own self-limitation, that God somehow, when he created Adam, became less sovereign. He surrendered some of that sovereignty. That is a patently unbiblical idea. As we will see, God's sovereignty does not wax or wane. As creator, he owns creation to do with it as he pleases, as omnipotent. He has the ability to rule over it without ever exhausting his power as omnipresent. He never rules from a distance, but is always present. As wise, he knows exactly what to do. As self-sufficient, his authority is not derived or contingent. As righteous, he always rules without blame. He rules blamelessly. And no accusation against him can stand. As good, his rule is always beneficial. As immutable, he rules consistently and eternally, never abdicating his throne or growing disinterested in his creation. And as gracious, his rule gives that which is not deserved, and God gives through his sovereignty apart from merit. That is the God we worship and adore. Charles Spurgeon describes this kind of, this kind of sovereignty this way. He says in one of his sermons on God's providence, he describes it as follows, quote, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of the leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between Almighty God who works all things according to the good pleasure of his will and no God at all, end quote. What Spurgeon is emphasizing is, is a reality that, that some professing Christians fail to think of. They, they will seek in some way to, to limit God's sovereignty. They will claim, yes, God is, uh, he is omnipotent, but for one reason or another, he has he has limited himself and is, is not controlling all of these details. And the question to ask them is, really? 
you really believe that? And that makes you happy? That solves your problems? That gives you hope? That your car crash or your flat tire, that those things are beyond God's control? That your illness or your promotion have nothing to do with God? And that is how you want to live this life? As Spurgeon rightly says, you can't find a middle ground. It is really only that you either believe in an all-sovereign God or you don't believe in God at all. Now, of course, when it comes to sovereignty, we have to deal with some of the misunderstandings that have developed over time. And, and as we all know, it is inherent to our flesh to be rebels. We're rebels. And so we do not like the idea of authority over us. In fact, if you're to ask the question, if for those of you who are parents in this room, what is the biggest challenge you face in parenting? And I can pretty much guarantee the answer, and the answer will be dealing with stubborn children. That is the biggest challenge in parenting. And if you're a school teacher, what's the biggest obstacle to your teaching? It's the stubbornness of the school children. And the the list goes on and on and on. We are, by our flesh, as being descendants of Adam, we are rebels. You just mentioned the idea of authority, and you have already a resistance that is a reflex. And in the unbeliever, that is his life. And, but even for us as believers, it's still part of our flesh. And so it is the reflex action that often when we hear someone else has authority, we get uncomfortable. And sadly, that is not just the case horizontally in dealing with human levels of interaction and hierarchy, but this even has to do theologically with God. And so throughout history, there have been those who have tried, by keeping the name of Christ in some way, who have tried to limit God's sovereignty and define it in different ways. One of those is the concept of deism. Deism redefines God's sovereignty by limiting it to the act of creation. It views the current world as operating now apart from God's direct control. What has basically happened is that in that supernatural event, God did create the heavens and the earth, and he created these laws, and like a like a clock, he wound it up and set it there and then left it alone to to do its own thing. And so deism teaches this idea that God exists, but he's far away. All that we really experience in this life is this closed continuum of the operation of impersonal laws. God does not really interact that much in our lives. That's deism, the heresy of deism. Another idea that has developed over time is what we can call libertarianism. Libertarianism. Kind of like what you have also in the political movement of libertarianism, that kind of idea that we are left to be on our own, and and that's the best form of government. That is taken also theologically, and there are libertarians, such as those who are part of a movement called open theism, that that teach that God's sovereignty is limited severely in that even though he created 
And even though he has control over natural material issues in this world, his sovereignty ends where your liberty begins, where your existence begins, where, where you have your decision-making power and your responsibilities. That's where God's sovereignty ends. And so his power and sovereignty are limited so as not to intrude upon man's freedom. And, and just as in the political environment, so also in the theological, libertarians treat liberty as the greatest good. Not God, but liberty. There is a third heresy that has, well, I won't call it a heresy, there is a third misunderstanding that has developed over time, and that is the doctrine or the teaching of Arminianism. Arminianism redefines God's sovereignty by extending it further than the libertarians, and will explain it this way, that God has indeed all the power and all the sovereignty in himself. He has created and he is sovereign over all things even today. Even the circumstances that you're involved in, the things that happen to you. However, God in his desire to show his goodness has also decided to limit the kind of influence he will have over a person morally. And this teaching of Arminianism among our Arminian brothers would say that this is important to emphasize so that man remains truly responsible for his moral actions, so that there is no impugning of evil to God's character. And while we can appreciate the fact that God is not the author of evil and he is not responsible for the evil that you do, Arminianism is not the biblical way to solve that dilemma. God is still sovereign over salvation. And we will see that in just a moment. In response to these kinds of, of ideas, Horatius Banar, writing a couple centuries ago, stated it this way, and I think he summarizes well what we often struggle with. He says this, quote, You are perplexed by the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election. I wonder that any man believing in a God should be perplexed by these. For if there be a God, a king, eternal, immortal, and invisible, he cannot but be sovereign, and he cannot but do according to all his own good will and choose according to his own purpose. You may dislike these doctrines, but you can only get quit of them by denying altogether the existence of an infinitely wise, glorious, and powerful being. God would not be God were he not thus absolutely sovereign in his present doings and his eternal prearrangements. Now, where do these, these responses and this definition arise from? We believe these things, again, not because... Some of our favorite theologians tell us, ultimately, we believe these things because this is what God has said about himself. 
And so to the testimony of Scripture, we now turn to look at how God has described himself and made himself known to us. And there are a lot of different categories that we can go through, but I'll go back to those four characteristics of divine sovereignty that I mentioned earlier, and we'll start with this. God's sovereignty is incomparable. It is matchless. It is matchless. The biblical writers regularly draw the line of relationship immediately from from God's sovereignty to the fact that he is incomparable, that there is no one like him. Let's look at some of these texts. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now, as this is Moses writing words from God, see now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. The psalmists regularly extol the sovereignty of God as evidence of his matchlessness. Psalm 95 verses 3 to 5 says this, For the Lord, for Yahweh, is a great God and a great King above all gods. Now, now notice why he makes that statement. He says this, In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. He owns it all. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 and 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure." Now, Isaiah records those words from Yahweh. Yahweh makes it crystal clear. He emphasizes it over and over again, especially in chapters 40 to 48 of Isaiah, that there is no other God. Why? Because there's no one else who has this kind of sovereignty, who will maintain his purpose and whose purpose cannot be thwarted and who acts freely according to his good pleasure. Jeremiah 10 verse 7 says this, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Now, notice that he is called king. And that terminology is synonymous with sovereignty. In fact, that's what we'll often say when addressing a king. He is the sovereign or he is the king. And in the case of Yahweh, he is the sovereign with uppercase S. He is the king with uppercase K, unlike anyone else. He is matchless in his sovereignty. Let's let's look now at the biblical testimony to the comprehensiveness of God's sovereignty. God is meticulously sovereign. The biblical writers regularly testify between or of the, the breadth 
of God's sovereignty and the depth. Notice some of the language, and again, as we go through this, look for the words all and every. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 to 12. This is David speaking. He says, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens. Notice that word, everything. And in the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Psalm 103, verse 19. Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Now that verse alone would seal it. But Scripture is replete with testimony. Psalm 135, verses 5 to 7. The psalmist says this, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. The rain drops, the lightning strikes, the wind. All of those things go exactly according to God's plan and purpose. Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So in those days, one of the ways that they would make decisions would be to cast lots, and whoever would draw the shortest straw, that would mean something. And here the writer of Proverbs says this, that that whoever draws the short straw, that's a decision not made by chance or by fate. It's made by Yahweh. Of course, Romans 8 verse 28 in the New Testament And we're passing by so much testimony here. But Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes all things. Not some things. Not occasional things. Not the majority of things. But all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The biblical writers, as I say, repeatedly describe God's sovereignty with these words showing that it is absolute and meticulous in its nature. Now we can break that into four smaller categories when we, when we talk about this, this exhaustive, comprehensive sovereignty real quickly. We can see it in four realms of creation. First of all, this comprehensive sovereignty is exercised over the natural world. We saw it already, but just a few texts here will do. Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12, the psalmist says, every beast of the forest is mine. Speaking of Yahweh, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all it contains. So you go to the the beach, and this is the amazing thing to think. You pick up a handful of sand and realize, I can't count all those 
particles there. And then you look down the beach and know that this is even just a small fraction of the entire California coast. And then you think, and the California coast is just a tiny fraction of all the coastlines in the world and that God knows every single particle of sand, every grain, and is in control of every single one. Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The the sparrow was and is the, the most common bird, the cheapest bird. And so it was worthless, essentially. It was one cent. And yet, even something so small and what we might think is so insignificant that not one of those birds falls to the ground apart from God's sovereignty. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of the Son, and He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of his power. And that's a reference there to all the natural world, all things in creation. There is a beautiful hymn by Isaac Watts that expresses this recognition of God's control over the natural world. The three stanzas read as follows, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord that fills the earth with food, who formed the creatures through the word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed, where'er I turn my eye, if I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky. And then notice this last stanza. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order of thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, And everywhere that we can be, thou God, art present there. Adoration that comes from the recognition that God controls all the material, physical world. A second subcategory to this comprehensive sovereignty is this. God's sovereignty is exercised even over the nations, over the political entities of this world. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. Think of that of any mayor, uh, of, of any governor, of any president or prime minister or senator or member of Congress. You must remember that. God turns that heart like water in his hands. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, great chapters of the sovereignty of God over the nations. And Daniel 2.21 says this, It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. 
When you talk about who's in the White House today or who will be in the White House two and a half years from now, of course, you can put a lot of emphasis on voters and certainly God used means, but ultimately, who is going to move one president in and one president out? It is God, and he has his purpose in that. Daniel 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is our God. He is sovereign over the nations. A third category, a third realm of this comprehensive sovereignty is seen in his exercise over the spiritual realm. And there are a lot of texts we could turn to here as well. Job chapter 1 and 2. We won't turn there now, but Job could not touch, or excuse me, Satan could not touch Job apart from God's plan. He could not lay a finger on him. In fact, based on that reality, it was Martin Luther who said that Satan is God's ape. God controls him, and God will never be thwarted by any of the powers of the dark spiritual realm. We see this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. Earlier on in Matthew chapter 8, you see a wonderful expression of Christ's sovereignty over the physical world. But then when you get to verse 28 to 34, you see Christ's sovereignty over the spiritual world. You have these demon-possessed men who are so violent that nobody can do anything with them. And Christ walks by and these men come out and say, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Those violent, ugly demons recognize who it is that is in their presence. They don't even pretend. They know that they will be one day tormented by the one in whose presence they stand. And the demons began to entreat saying, if you're going to cast us out, at least let us go into the herd of swines and not into the pit of hell. And so Jesus, with one word, says, go. Because they were right in a way, it was not their time to be tormented in the pit of hell. That wasn't the right time in the process of redemptive history. And so instead, Christ simply says, go, and they're gone. No one had ever been able to do anything with those demon-possessed men, ever. And Jesus says one word, go. One word fells them. In fact, speaking of that and speaking of Martin Luther, he has a stanza in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, of God's sovereignty over the spiritual realm. It goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That is the sovereignty 
of our God. And even just considering that, you begin to see why the doctrine of God's sovereignty is so important for us. It's not something that we are to debate and to be controversial over. This is where we derive our hope and our confidence in this world, that we need not fear the spiritual realm. Satan cannot touch us. His minions cannot touch us unless... In our case as God's children, God has has something to do with us and he's going to make it all work out for our good, our eternal good. And that's what we want anyway. God's sovereignty is also exercised in, number four, salvation. As we talk about this comprehensive sovereignty, it is exercised especially in salvation. When Jesus answered Nicodemus' questions... Uh, about being born again, Jesus emphasizes the sovereignty of God over salvation. He, he says this in, 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 in response to the question, how can a man be born again? It's a good question. It's a question about sovereignty. Because think of it, who here in this room ever participated in a decision about your birth? No one. It is the most evident analogy to show us how little of a part we have in things. Just look at your birth. You had no say. And Jesus takes that and he uses that as as an analogy to refer to salvation. And, And so Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born again? We can't even control our first birth. And Jesus answers with these words, truly, truly, I say to you, John 3, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That new birth is not something you determine for yourself. In the same way, you can't control the wind. You can't control the Spirit. And we ought to be thankful for that. Whenever somebody will say, well, no, I want to have responsibility in that, it's automatically an evidence that you don't understand your depravity. You don't understand your darkness. You're in in bondage to sin. There's no way that you even want to be saved in the best of your days. In the best of your moments, there's never a time in your state, in your nature, because of your sinfulness, that you ever say, hmm, you know what? I think it would be good to believe in Christ. Never. Your depravity is so pervasive that the only solution is a sovereign God who is sovereign even over your sin. And that's the great hope that we find in Yahweh. John 17, verses 1 to 2, Jesus says to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus is referring to the reality there. He's right, right before the ultimate accomplishment of redemption. He is going in a few hours to the cross where he will accomplish redemption for all who have ever believed in the promise. 
And so this is an important time in redemptive history, and Jesus acknowledges that the Father has given him all authority, and all that the Father has given him to save, he will, he will save. He will give them eternal life through his death. James 1 verse 18, in the exercise of our will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Not at all. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. That is the comprehensive nature of God's sovereignty, manifest in the natural world, manifest over the nations, manifest in the spiritual world, and manifest over our own salvation. Stepping back now to those general categories, not only do we see that God's sovereignty is matchless and comprehensive, but we also see it's irresistible. A few verses here are sufficient. Job 42 verse 2, here Job, having been brought to the end of his own complaining, being brought to repentance over his complaint over God's lack of involvement perceived by Job in that way, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours will be thwarted. What's interesting in the case of Job is this, it begins in those first two chapters with Satan coming to request permission and it's actually God who even says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And it's a good thing we're not part of those conversations because we'd be saying, please don't mention our names. (laughs) But God says, and why does he say this? Because he's sovereign over Job too. Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And there's interaction there in those first two chapters, but then you know what? After that, Satan's never mentioned again. And what gets to the very end of, of, the, of the book, as Job is brought to his repentance and also to his new acknowledgement, he has, he has kept the faith the whole time, but he's stumbled along the way. But at the end... He makes this profession. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says that of Yahweh. He doesn't need any explanation why now as to why God sent Satan after him. Needs no explanation. He just knows God's plans cannot be thwarted. He does all things. Psalm 115 verses 2 to 3. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. Over and over again, you have this reference to God doing whatever He pleases. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, again, we've read this already, is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. Isaiah 42.13, there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and no one can reverse it. We've seen this in Daniel 4.35. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Revelation 3 verse 7, when Jesus opens up a door, no one can shut it. No one. We also see, fourthly, that God's sovereignty is immutable. It doesn't change. It does not wax or wane. It does not diminish or increase. It does not evolve. Psalm 93, verses 1 to 2, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Everlasting. 
Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Comparing man's, man's fading, man's waxing and waning, you have Yahweh and his counsel will not ebb and flow. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. You can look at Isaiah 14.24. You could look at Ephesians 3, verses 10 to 11. There you have the reference to the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, 17 to 18, we read of the unchangeableness of God's purpose over and over and over again. We have a reference after a reference after a reference to the unchanging nature of God's matchless, incomprehensible, immutable sovereignty. And that is precious to us. In fact, as we close our time, let's quickly look at what this attribute of sovereignty demands from us. First of all, first and foremost, knowing our own penchant as rebels, even those who have been regenerated, our first conclusion to which we must run is this, we must eradicate all thoughts of resistance. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, no doctrine in the whole word of God has more, has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. The fact that the Lord reigneth is indisputable, and it is this fact that arouses the utmost opposition in the unrenewed human heart. Jerry Bridges says, it seems we will allow God to be anywhere except upon his throne, ruling the universe according to his good pleasure and his sovereign will. Now, that certainly is true of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is a son of disobedience. Every unbeliever is a rebel with a capital R. Every unbeliever is at enmity with God and alienated because of that rebellion, the refusal to bend the knee. We here have bent the knee by God's sovereign design, and yet we still struggle with this. We don't like this doctrine. But as we read the Scriptures and come to terms with the reality that, that, that God is sovereign, there's nothing we can do about it, and actually, as we will see, it is our greatest comfort that we must treat any thought of rebellion, of any kind of resistance, of any kind of discontentment with this attribute, we must treat that ruthlessly. It must have no place in us as the children of God. Isaiah 45 verses 9 to 10, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth, Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Romans 9, 20 to 21 picks up this same idea. In fact, it's a common idea used to express the great distance between God as sovereign and we who are his subjects, God as potter and we who are the clay. Here Paul writes, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, what do these texts 
teach us, even to us who have been regenerated and and who have already been taught to submit and to bend the knee to Christ, and we do that, and yet we still struggle with this flesh. What does it it teach? It teaches that uh, that the idea that we have, this resistance that still resides within us, must be mortified. And one common example of this is when we go through bad circumstances. And one of the first questions that will come even from Christians' mouths, and I understand it, it's the question, why, God, did you do this? What were you thinking? But we must realize that although God is gracious to us and cleanses us from those questions, those questions are not the right response. And they will not help you. Instead, you must eradicate that kind of thinking. And men, you may say, well, I don't struggle with it now. The hardships will come. And what is best for you to do is to get this doctrine of God's sovereignty so well placed into your life so that when the cancer comes or the spouse dies or some other difficulty comes, you can bless the name of the Lord and your response isn't to curse. Eradicate the resistance by God's grace. Number two, we must associate God's sovereignty with his perfection. Again, a problem often is that we disassociate these things and we think somehow that absolute sovereignty is some kind of imperfection. We've been led to think that with God, absolute power must corrupt. But that is so untrue of our ultimately wise and benevolent and righteous God. God's absolute sovereignty and his absolute perfection go hand in hand and we dare not separate them. Because when you think of it, a God who is not ultimately sovereign, who surrenders his divine authority either due to external compulsion or some kind of self-imposed limitation, he's no perfect God. Why does he have to limit himself? Where is the perfection in that? Stephen Charnock expressed it well when he said this, to fancy an infinite power without a supreme dominion is to fancy a mighty, senseless statue, fit to be beheld, but not fit to be obeyed, as not being able or having no right to give out orders or not caring for the exercise of it. A.W. Pink, in describing the problem of today's churches and the resistance to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, puts it this way, the God of the 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory of the midday sun. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme God and no God at all. A God who, whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, poses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. Instead, we must do as the psalmists do. That we must recognize that this absolute sovereignty is the display of absolute perfection. The psalmist in 103 verses 90 to 20 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord. 
you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying his voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's what it ought to do. And by contemplating this ultimate sovereignty, it will raise our souls to the heights of adoration. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of His glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore Him as a sovereign God. May that be the motivation of your worship. You go to Him not as a God who limits Himself, but a God who is limitless. And that is what attracts you to Him as worthy of your utmost adoration. Finally, We must rest in his promises and his providences. What are his promises? His promises are those declarations that he has made for our good. He has promised to do certain things for his children. And those promises are true and real and precious because he is all sovereign. He will bring it to pass. And so you see this in Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 18, where you have this statement made, in the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs, the recipients of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, has interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of to, to, to take hold of the hope set before us. These promises are there. And they're there for you, for you to take hold of, not on the basis of your sovereignty, not on the basis of your freedom, not on the basis of your ability, but the promises of God in the gospel are there for you and, and, and they will be achieved because of God's commitment to honor himself in those promises for you. And he will accomplish it because he is sovereign. Well, what about in the providences? What are the providences? The providences are those unseen things of God, those unspoken things, the specific details of your life. You must rest in them. What will happen to you on the way home tonight? What will happen to you tomorrow at work? What will happen to you next week during Thanksgiving? Resting in, the pro- in those providences. And let me tell you this, that those saints who have found that level of, of maturity and rest in that, they have a life of bliss even in this dark and difficult world. And I can say this, that finding that peace and contentment, that, that these providences, these circumstances that happen, that they're from God's hand, that is the most encouraging thing that can happen. You sometimes think, well, how can a bad diagnosis or bad news be in any way good? Why can't we say that God's not in control of that? And my response to you is, okay, just think what happens then next. How does that help you that your diagnosis is not under God's control? That that bad news, God doesn't have anything to do with that. He's not involved in that. How is that going to help you? How is that going to get you through? How is that going to give you hope? Blind fate is a ruthless master. 
But a sovereign personal God, even in the midst of great pain and suffering, is all hope and joy. Romans 8.28, this is where it comes down to. And we know that God causes all things, all these providences, to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. As I said, for the believer, the sovereignty of God is that precious pillow. In fact, let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon again on this doctrine. He says this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend than to the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. And perhaps this is that reminder that you need when we talk about the sovereignty of God We're not talking about an impersonal sovereignty. We're talking about the God who exercises it. And he is all good. And to his children, he will work all things to good. Rest in that. Let's pray. Father, our our thoughts are certainly challenged by this truth, but Father, they're challenged in the best of ways. We see the, the dead end called rebellion, the dead end of resistance, the dead end of endless questioning why. We see it brings no hope. And then we see the path of light that leads to the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who says, I do all things, and I do them well. And this doctrine brings us rest. We pray, Father, that as we go from here this evening, that we would be possessed by this reality And it would change our demeanor in life. It would change how we respond to circumstances, how we react to news that would give us this confident peace and hope and trust and contentment in life. And even if any one of us should go home, even this very evening, to the worst of news, may this doctrine comfort them knowing that someday, It'll all make sense. And that that person will look back and say that was the very best thing that God could have done. May that be the readiness that marks all of us. So we pray for your spirit to take these words, press them deep within us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.